Father, may that be the honest and deep desire of our hearts. You are the lover of our souls. And so may our prayer be, help me to live for you. Father, not my will, but what you will. Because Jesus prayed that for us when we were unworthy and undeserving. So help us, I pray this morning, to not just sing those words from our lips, but to mean those words from our hearts. As we look into your word now, this is your word. This is the living word, the true word, the word that gives eternal life. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see, knees to bow, hearts to love. As we see Jesus in a way we've never seen him before this morning. Show us the grace and the glory of your one and only son. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. As you can see, we are concluding our gathering this morning by observing communion together. And so if you walked into this room this morning without grabbing a communion cup, you'll find them out in the lobby. Go ahead and make your way out there now. Mark chapter 14, in your copies of God's Word this morning, please, Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack there. It's page 1012 in the church Bible this morning. And as you're finding your place there in Mark chapter 14, I want to begin this morning just with a personal note, and that is, would you pray for the Nielsen family? Ken and Elaine, Elaine, it's good to see you here this morning. But Ken and Elaine would sit right where she is sitting this morning. And this past Friday, God called Ken home to be with him. After several years of struggling with dementia, Ken's suffering is now done. He is more alive this morning than he has ever been in the eternal presence of Jesus and it was my privilege to spend some time this week with Elaine and the Nielsen family. And during the conversations that we had there in their home, Elaine turned to me and said, Pastor Ken, you'll never know how much I love Bethel Baptist Church. You'll never know how meaningful the ministry of God's people in serving me and serving Ken what it has meant to us. And so I just, I share those words with you because you are the church. You are the ones who have cared well for Ken and Elaine in these years of struggle. And so I'm just the mouthpiece this morning. Thank you for loving and serving the Nielsens in their suffering because Jesus has loved and served you in his suffering. That's our text today. This is, this is what Jesus has been anticipating. Every step he has taken toward Jerusalem, this final time he will enter Jerusalem. He knows the cross is coming. He knows the Garden of Gethsemane will precede the cross. He doesn't know what that is going to feel like for him because he experiences here something he's never experienced before. 
But this is the purpose for which Jesus has come. And now he is embracing that purpose in its totality, regardless of how painful and sorrowful it is for him. This is what it looks like for Jesus to bear our sins away. And it's going to be hard for us to see Jesus bowing beneath the weight of our sin this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be betrayed in just a few moments. He will die in just a few hours. And we see Christ struggling here in the garden. Let's pick up the scene in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place, Jesus and his disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. And Jesus came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Look, my betrayer is right here. He's at hand. This is the word of our God. This morning we enter into a scene that is one of the most sacred scenes in the entire Bible. And as we enter this scene, I sense my inability to effectively communicate how deeply meaningful this text really is. And so it is my prayer this morning. It has been my prayer all week that the Spirit of God will open our eyes and our hearts to the glory and the grace of the Son of God by enabling us to understand as much as humans can what Jesus is experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that we would be so overwhelmed with awe at what we see here and hear here that we will worship the Christ we encounter here. And then I want to encourage us this morning to grasp the big idea and the big takeaway from this scene for us. That in order to be the kind of Jesus followers that God calls us to be, we must be able to pray what Jesus prays here. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Not my plan, but your plan. Not my desires, your desires. There is a sense in in which we can enter into Jesus' prayer here. But we'll never get that 
until we get that there is also a sense in which we cannot. Because it's here that Jesus begins to experience the kind of suffering that we will never experience. It's Jesus, the righteous one, suffering in the place of the unrighteous, the holy on behalf of the unholy, the, sin, the, the sinless for the sinful. None of us will ever suffer in the way we see Jesus suffering here. Because if we are the children of God by faith in Jesus, then none of us will ever experience separation or isolation from the Father because none of us will bear the wrath of the Father. You know why? Because in this scene we are given a glimpse into the Jesus who bears all of that wrath for us forever and so the key then to being able to pray not my will father but your will be done is seeing this Jesus and loving this Jesus who prayed those words on our behalf winning for us the ability to pray the prayer he prayed so I need to ask this morning can you pray this prayer the prayer that Jesus prayed for you And can you pray this prayer, not just casually or generally over your entire life, but specifically and categorically about everything in your life? Your marriage, your parenting, your singleness, your career, even your suffering. Not my will, but your will. Young people, as you are mapping out your life, are you praying this prayer? Parents and grandparents, are you teaching your kids and your grandkids to pray this prayer by showing them what it looks like to live out this prayer in real life? You see, this morning I want to show us what it meant to Jesus to bear away our sins. Because in Gethsemane, we discover as much as humans can what it looks like and what it feels like and what it sounds like for the Holy Son of God to enter the the crucible of human suffering to bear away our sins. And so it is here in the garden that we see Christ's humanity on full display. How God became man is a mystery to us. But the purpose in God becoming man is not a mystery. It's what we learned back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of God came to us, being like us, to be the sinless substitute for us. He's fully human, like us, but completely sinless, unlike us. Only as a human could Christ represent us and die our death. And only as God could Christ's death have sufficient power to supply redemption for the sins of all humankind. That's what's happening in this scene. As Jesus leads his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane there on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem, 
Now, interestingly, the name Gethsemane is derived from Aramaic, and it literally means oil press. So it's here on the Mount of Olives where olives would have been grown that these olives then would be squeezed and pressed into olive oil. And so it is a very fitting place for Jesus to come when he feels the pressure of what's coming for him. And that's what we see here. Pressure applied to the soul of Jesus. And so when Jesus and his disciples arrive in the garden, Jesus says to his guys, notice here in the text, sit here while I pray. And then Jesus turns to his inner circle guys, Peter and James and John, and he says, come with me. Let's go a little farther. And as he is leading them deeper than into that garden, we encounter a Jesus we are unfamiliar with. I mean, this is the storm-calming, sea-walking Jesus. This is the disease-healing, demon-defeating, death-overcoming Jesus. The same Jesus who back in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, is walking courageously and resolutely out in front of his disciples, leading them into Jerusalem with his face set like a flint, marching toward his own death, unfazed, undeterred undaunted. But here, here in this garden, Peter and James and John witness a Jesus they are unfamiliar with, a Jesus who is greatly distressed and troubled. Now, the word distressed here is a compound form of the verb to be amazed So Jesus isn't just amazed by what he sees and feels and experiences here. He is compoundly amazed. He is super amazed. Literally, it would be he is blown away. But what could amaze Jesus? I mean, what could amaze Jesus? He's omniscient. He knows everything. What could ever shock him or blow him away? Is there anything he doesn't know? Because he's never experienced it. And the answer is yes. It's what's coming for him in just a few hours on that cross because what he will experience there is totally foreign to him. Something completely new for him. And that's why here in the garden, he isn't just amazed, he is troubled. It's a word that means astonished. You know, not in a, wow, I can't believe what I'm seeing because this is so crazy cool kind of way, like when we see the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon for the first time. No, this is astonishment that is rooted in anguish to a level that is humanly incomprehensible. It's a kind of excruciatingly horrific pain that seizes the soul and squeezes the life from it like when a parent loses a child. This is such an overwhelming feeling for Jesus that he opens his heart to his disciples and he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So Jesus is experiencing sorrow and anguish that threatens life itself. 
It's a kind of emotion that comes from places within your heart that you never knew existed. It's the kind of grief that is so frightening that you can't help but cry out, what I'm feeling is killing me. I'm dying here. This is unfamiliar territory for Jesus. And seeing this from Jesus is unfamiliar territory for us. It probably makes us a bit uncomfortable because we believe in the deity of Jesus. We believe that Jesus isn't just like God. He is God. He is truly God. He is very God. That He possesses in Himself all the attributes of God. The wisdom of God. The knowledge of God. The power of God. Because He is God. But here in the garden like never before we see the humanity of Jesus. That Jesus isn't just somehow God encased in a human body. He is human, truly human, very human. He has human needs. He thinks human thoughts. He feels human feelings. And so when Jesus says to his guys, listen, I'm scared to death here, he isn't putting on. He isn't faking it. The eternal God, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe is overwhelmed in his humanity. He is struggling. He is hurting. He is dying. In a way that he never has before. And that's why he says to his guys, stay here. Stay awake and watch. Because where I'm going and what I'm doing, I must go and do alone. You know, aloneness for us is very rare. In fact, I may even argue that none of us has ever truly been alone. We may feel alone. We may even be separated from everyone geographically, but all of us have something in our pockets or our purse that we could pull out, and when we do, within moments, we would have somebody there who loved us to be with us, Someone who could identify with us in whatever we're facing or whatever we're feeling. But Mark here wants us to know that Jesus in the garden is absolutely, utterly alone. No one understands what he is going through. No one can put their arm around Jesus and say, I've been there and done that. No one can identify with what he's feeling Because no one can face what he's facing. Which is why he leaves his guys behind. And as he begins to go a little farther, he begins feeling his feet failing him. And he falls to the ground. The one who Hebrews says upholds the universe by the word of his power cannot Find the strength to keep his feet under him. And he falls. And Luke in his gospel tells us that the Father dispatches an angel from heaven to strengthen Jesus. Now, if you grew up going to Sunday school, 
then you would probably remember the flannel graph figure of Jesus in this scene, or maybe you've seen this painting of Jesus in this scene where he is kneeling in the garden, where he is leaning on a rock, praying there in the garden. Strike this from your memory. This is wrong. The flannel graph figure Jesus The artistic depiction of Jesus, totally wrong. Jesus is not kneeling. Jesus is not leaning. Jesus is falling to the ground, his face buried in the dirt of that garden. And Luke tells us that Jesus is so gripped by anguish that he begins sweating profusely. Not just drops of sweat, but drops of of blood. Why? Why is the all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal Son of God so deeply distressed that He falls to the ground sweating drops of blood? Why? Because it is here in this garden that Jesus gets a foretaste of what it will mean for Him to bear our griefs And to carry our sorrows by being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53. It's here that the Holy One of God begins to contemplate and to feel the sheer horror of the cup. And that's why he cries out from the depths of his soul in the dirt of that garden, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word for father that would be closely linked to our English word daddy. It implies intimacy and closeness and love. Daddy, if it is possible, let this hour pass from me. I, am, I, am, I feel helpless in this moment. I don't know what to do with the feelings in this moment. And so I'm bringing them to you, asking you to take them from me. All things are possible for you, Daddy. So I ask that you take this cup from me. It's the cup. Jesus shrinks from the cup. Jesus falls at the thought of the cup. He doesn't fear death. His soul doesn't recoil at the thought of being beaten or spit upon or nailed to a cross. It isn't the physical suffering that terrifies Jesus, the physical suffering we saw portrayed so well in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. But it's not that. It's not death. It's the cup. So what is the cup. It's what we read back in Isaiah 51, verse 17. It's the cup of God's wrath against sin. It's the unmitigated fury of God's holy wrath. And as Jesus gazes into that cup of wrath, he is brought face to face with the horrifying reality that on the cross, he will become the object of the Father's wrath. He will feel it. He will face it in full. 
And that means for the only time in all of eternity past or eternity future, the Son will be alienated from the Father. It's what Bible scholar William Lane has said. Listen carefully. This is a long quote, but it is, it is a good quote. The sorrow and anxiety out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny. It is not a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the, at the prospect of alienation from the Father which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal. But here in the garden he found hell rather than heaven open before him. And he staggered. And that's because as Jesus stares into that cup, he sees hell in its full-blown fury. He sees the utter absence of God. He feels the absolute alienation from God. And that hell is such a daunting sight for Jesus that three times He pleads with the Father to take the cup away. Three times. And three times Jesus hears nothing but the deafening sounds of silence from His Father. Now I believe that the Father so loves the Son that if there would have been any alternative, any other way that the Father would have provided it, but, but, but the Father doesn't because the only way we could ever understand the agony of Calvary is through the lens of Gethsemane. So that when Jesus is on the cross... And he cries out the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know why the Father is silent then. It's because there is no other way for sinners to be forgiven and granted entrance into God's heaven. There is no other way because as Acts 4 verse 12 says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can and must be saved. There is no other way. Jesus is the only way. We can't be enough or do enough or give enough. Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath against our sin is the only way. For God then so loved the world that he was silent when his only son pleaded to take the cup away. For God so loved the world. And so these sacred silent moments in the garden speak volumes to us. Showing us that Christ knows what it means to be in the grips of sorrow. Christ knows what it means to be utterly alone. Christ knows the pain of the distress of soul. Jesus is alone here in the garden staring into that cup. And in his humanity, he is shuddering and shaking and staggering, yet willingly agreeing to the Father's will. Not what I will, Father, but what you will. 
The real human emotions that are overwhelming Jesus are not powerful enough to stop Jesus from drinking this cup for us. And so his willingness and his ability to pray this prayer in his suffering wins for you and me the ability to pray that prayer in our suffering. Like Jesus, even when your emotions are overwhelming you, even when the feelings are running away with you, you can, by His grace, push through by praying like Jesus, not what I will, Father, but what You will. But listen, we will never understand what Jesus' suffering means for us until we grasp what His suffering meant for Him. This is what amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me looks like and feels like and sounds like. So don't sleep on Jesus like Peter and James and John do there in the garden. Because each time Jesus prays for the Father to remove that cup from him, he returns to find them asleep. Three times. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Three times are you sleeping and taking your rest? Three times they respond to Jesus with silence. Three times. Why are those three times significant? I believe it's because in just a few hours... Peter will be warming his hands by a fire while Jesus is standing trial in the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter will deny ever knowing Jesus three times. I wonder if Jesus' words here were ringing in Peter's ears there. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Not my will but your will be done. What Jesus does on this night and what Jesus prays on this night is intended to make a lasting impact on us as his followers. I'm going to borrow a few words. The main points here are from C.J. Mahaney. I could not improve on them, and God has used them in my life, and so I want to share them with you. This scene calls us to respond in three ways. Number one, see the depth of Jesus' love for you in his darkest hour. It is shocking. It is shocking to see Jesus struggle and stagger and fall beneath the load of my sin as his soul is being crucified in Gethsemane before his body is crucified at Calvary. What is happening here is what Charles Spurgeon once said in Gethsemane. Jesus took the cup of wrath in both hands and drank damnation dry. Jesus took the cup of damnation for us and drank it to the dregs to take it from us. There is not a cup, there is not a drop in that cup of God's wrath for us to drink. Because Jesus has given us a new cup, the cup of salvation. He drank my cup of damnation that I might drink his cup of salvation. 
It's what we sing in the old hymn. Amazing love, how can it be that God, that, that Jesus, that God should die for me? Can I ask, is that true for you? Is Jesus your Savior, your King, your Lord, your sin bearer? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes we are healed. Jesus tastes death. He sees death. He experiences death. Not only that, he experiences hell. He sees hell in that cup. And he takes that hell on behalf of everyone who will bow the knee to him and confess him as Lord and Savior and King and embrace him by grace alone through faith alone. Is that you? You see, that's how the death of Jesus gets applied to you. You come by his grace to him in faith. It's what we read in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, that you have been saved by grace through faith. And none of that is of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. So would you come to the Jesus who came for you? Would you come in faith to him? Would you embrace the one who embraced Gethsemane for you? Would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? As Acts 16, verse 31 says, right here, right now, see his love, the depth of his love for you in his darkest hour. And if you will, then secondly, you'll know his care for you in your darkest hour. See, dark hours are inevitable for each of us. All we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer and suffer deeply. And we, from this text, we know now that Jesus will care for us in our darkest hour because of what he endures for us in his darkest hour. Now, I know that many of you have gone through some horrifically horrible things. So please understand that I am not minimizing your suffering when I say that none of us will go through our Gethsemane. None of us. Our suffering cannot even begin to compare with his We've never been given this cup to drink. We've never been abandoned by God or alienated from God. We may feel abandoned, but feelings do not determine reality. Jesus' reality here is abandonment in full. He doesn't just feel alone. He is alone. Heaven's door is shut to him for us. To us, that's a mystery. He prays and the Father is silent. He dies and the Father turns his face away. We could never and will never identify with what it means to become sin when we had no sin, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. We could never identify with the Father hanging every murder, every adultery, every rape, every tax evasion, every drive-by shooting, every drug deal, every piece of gossip, and every lie upon me. 
I could never identify with that as if I were the murderer and the adulterer. The rapist and the tax evader and the drive-by shooter and the drug dealer and the gossiper and the liar. We will never understand the weight of that or the stress of that or the horror of that. We get squeamish just watching all of that on the evening news. But Jesus doesn't just see that on a TV screen. He bears all of that in his body on the cross. He becomes sin for us. And that's why his suffering becomes the source of comfort in our suffering. He has suffered to a degree that we never will so that he can comfort us in all our suffering. It's Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect the point of death has been tempted as we are yet without sin so what here's what so then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need come the one who knows sorrow and suffering and distress of soul to an infinitely greater degree than we ever will. And he will comfort us. He will. Listen, our king is a king with wounds. Wounds that he took for us so that he is able to sympathize with us in every moment of our suffering. He will never forsake us. He will never turn his face from us, but will always, always, always give mercy and grace to help in our time of need. In the garden, we see a suffering Jesus who will care for us in our darkest hour. So let's thirdly, Hear his counsel to us in our darkest hour. Jesus counsels Peter and James and John to watch and pray. Jesus himself enters the garden to prepare for his suffering by praying. He enters Gethsemane trembling and staggering and in deep distress. But when he emerges from Gethsemane, he is trembling and troubled no more. How do you explain that? Prayer. And that's why he says to Peter and James and John, it is enough. The hour has come. I'm about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. So let's get going. Look, there's my betrayer coming now, Judas Iscariot, walking up the Mount of Olives. He's at hand. Jesus is not running from his betrayer. He's walking toward his betrayer. So when Christ counsels Peter and James and John and us to watch and pray, he is caring for them in their darkest hour. He has not brought them along to protect or comfort them or or, or him. He has brought them along to protect and comfort them. 
they will face great temptation. And he prepares them to face that temptation with prayer. Did Peter and James and John ever learn that lesson? The lesson they failed to learn on this night in the garden. Did they ever heed the counsel Jesus gives them on this night in the garden? And I am happy to tell you, yes. Because years later, Peter will take a pen in his hand and he will write on papyrus the words of 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Perhaps he's thinking back to this night in the garden when through heavy eyelids he's watching Jesus praying for him. And he writes this, casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your fears, all your questions, all your doubts, casting all of that on Jesus because he cares for you. The Jesus who stepped in to bear our sins will surely step in to bear our burdens. And we know that because he entered the garden for us, feeling and facing the horrors of the cross with words that enable us to pray in every hour what he prays in his darkest hour. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. Amen. So can I ask... Can you pray that prayer? Are you praying that prayer? Has God identified this morning through His Spirit, using His Word, any place, anywhere in your life where you cannot pray that prayer genuinely from your heart? God, Your will in this area, in this area, in this area, but... But not your will here, my will here. We're going to come to the table now. And we're going to remember the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the the wrath-absorbing crucifixion of Jesus. And this is where we come face to face with our sinfulness. And so I've got to ask, can you pray that prayer? Maybe this morning we prepare to remember the death of Jesus by asking God to forgive us where we are holding on to our will rather than submitting to his. Let's pray. Let's go to our God, the God who hears us, the God who loves us. And let's talk to him as we prepare to partake of communion together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done in spite of who we are and what we have done. Thank you for hanging every one of our sins on Jesus. 
and thank you that Jesus was willing to have every one of my sins hung on himself. I will never understand what that feels like to take the wrath, your holy wrath, against my sin in full because Jesus took it for me. And now I'm free. I'm free from that forever. How great the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. So may I, Lord, in my own life be able to pray, not my will but yours be done in everything. All because of Jesus. Only through Jesus. Only in the name of Jesus. Amen.